Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 16. Uh, We've been working through the book of Genesis for a while now, uh, particularly looking at the story of Abraham for a number of weeks, and we come to Genesis 16 this morning. Before we read that together, though, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your grace that you have shown us in Jesus, and we thank you that you have not left us to figure it out on our own, but that you have given us your word, uh, your word which is truth, as we heard earlier. We pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on us now, that you would help us to uh, receive that truth, help us uh, to not be like the hard soil in Jesus' parable, uh, that that word would just bounce off us, help us to not be the shallow soil, that we would receive it with joy, but quickly it would wither. Uh, help us to not be the, the soil that's full of weeds, that the word would be choked out in our hearts, but we pray that by your spirit our hearts would be the good soil, that we would receive your word and that we would bear fruit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old 
when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Some lessons are harder to learn than others. Uh, You may think, you may not, but you may think that I pretty much have it together. Uh, I'm not yelling at my kids up here. I'm not depressed at work up here. I'm not arguing with my wife or struggling with some deep sin. But this is just one more instance of a very common rookie mistake in life. Uh, Here's what we do. We compare our internal, private life to everyone else's external public life. But most of us are able to keep it uh, together on the outside in public. Not everybody, but most of us. It's when we are in the privacy of our own homes or in the privacy of our own thoughts that things begin to unravel. How do you respond when you are itching for God's vision of things to come about, but it hasn't happened yet? God has promised in the scriptures nothing less than a new creation, victory over sin, bodies that don't get sick, relationships that don't break down, and more. How do you respond when you are itching for God's vision of things to come about, but it hasn't happened yet? The moment I thought of that question, I was convicted. Uh, How do I respond? I I get angry, or I blame, or I connive, or contrive, or scheme, or plan. I pray a little. I'll do anything but wait. Wait for God's purposes to come about. But what if waiting is what God has called me to do? I want to make the world a perfect place yesterday, or at least my church, or at least my home, or at least myself, something. But God is calling me and you to wait on him. Now, I I love the book of Genesis, and I love this story of Sarai, Abram, and Hagar, because as remote as it may be from modern culture, though it's not quite as remote as you may think, but Every decision, every emotion, every sin is eminently relatable. And here's what we're going to see this morning. First, when you try to do what only God can do, you only make things worse. Second, God meets us in our helplessness. And third, therefore, what if God is calling you to wait? So first, when you try to do what only God can do, you only make things worse. Think of some area in your life that you wish were different right now. Are there things that you have done, uh, tactics you have tried, steps you have taken that have only made things worse? Your intentions maybe were, were good, but the outcome was horrible. Why was that? Maybe because when you try to do what only God can do, you only make things worse. Uh, We've been following this story, uh, following Abram and Sarai's story, uh, from late in chapter 11 straight through to chapter 15. And most of the time, uh, Abram has been wrestling with God's promise of land. In chapter 12, Abram left the land because of a famine, you may remember, but God was faithful and brought him back. In chapter 13, we saw Abram's growing confidence, and as he let Lot choose which 
area of the land he wanted rather than grasping at what this world has to offer. In chapter 14, Abram conquers the land, as it were, acting as Lord of Canaan he, by rescuing his nephew Lot from his enemies. In chapter 15, we have a, a kind of transition. God again promises Abram the land, but God says his descendants in the fourth generation would inherit it. So God gets a little more specific on how Abram is going to inherit this land. And so we move from focusing on the promise of land to, to the promise of seed to the promise of children, the promise of descendants. Because up to this point in chapter 15, Abram has none. At that point in chapter 15, Abram believes God and God feeds his faith as we saw last week. He, he stirs up Abram's faith in God's promises. And when we get to chapter 16, we find that Abram's faith still has room to grow. Uh, chapter 16 begins with these words. Now, Sarai, Abram's faith, had borne him no children. Uh, we were told that Sarai was barren from the start. You may remember back in chapter 11, verse 30. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. Now we are 10 years in, according to verse 3. And the situation remains the same. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Ten long years. Again, how do you respond when you look at God's promises and you look at reality and you notice a gap? Maybe you respond with bitterness toward God. You think, if God really loved me, he would do what he said. Maybe you uh, respond in unbelief. If God were real... Uh, maybe you lie to yourself. Oh, it, it's just around the corner, right? Any day now, things are going to happen. Maybe you blame yourself. If I really had faith, then things would be different. Well, Sarai may be a bit bitter. Uh, perhaps she blames God, but she definitely seeks to take matters into her own hands. Again, verses 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now maybe there's a hint of bitterness there. Maybe a hint of blame there. Maybe she's just stating the facts. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, what Sarai suggests seems preposterous to us, but it was actually an accepted way of getting children in that day. I'm not saying it was accepted in the scriptures, but it was accepted in that culture. It was kind of the, the BC version of in vitro fertilization. Uh, that's not a knock on in vitro fertilization, but it's just the fundamental premise is the same, right? If you can't get pregnant in the normal way, well, try something else. For Sarai, it was go into my handmaid. Now, this uh, process has been brought into pop culture recently by first the book and then the TV show, The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, I, I, I'm not vouching for the TV show, uh, but the, the book is, is actually fascinating. Uh, and yet we need to be careful not to equate this popularized version with what we see in Scripture. And, and the very first thing to notice, the very first uh, clear difference, uh, is that the writer of Genesis does not approve 
Uh, this is not a God-sanctioned method of multiplication. Uh, notice a couple of things. First, in verse 2, uh, it tells us that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, the last time we are told something like that was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, where God says to Adam, "'Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you.'" Now, uh, and, and husbands, listen up carefully to this. It's not that listening to your wife is bad. But in both of these cases, Adam and Abram's wives were encouraging them to do something wrong. They should have led, right? They should have taken the initiative to say, God does not want this, and we must obey God rather than men, or in this case, rather than their wives. But they didn't do that. Uh, They listened to the voice of their wives. In both cases, uh, both Adam and Abram are really essentially passive As husbands, they they fail to lead. They fail to step up to make the hard call, to do the hard thing. They simply go along to get along. And friends, the truth of the matter is we must choose godliness over the crowd, even when the crowd is those closest to us. And this is even more true for those in positions of leadership, whether husbands or fathers or business owners or politicians, male or female. When you are called to lead, you must not follow others into sin, but lead them into righteousness. God doesn't want passive husbands, fathers, leaders in the home or church or community, but leaders who step up and lead in righteousness, even or especially when those in their care would have them do otherwise. And this is why we must be praying for our leaders, right? Wives, pray for your husbands. Children, pray for your parents, Employees, pray for your employers. Citizens, pray for your politicians, right? That they would not be passive, but step up and lead in righteousness. Uh, So first, both Adam and Abram uh, followed their wives into sin. Uh, This little phrase, you you have listened, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, right? Is an indication that something wrong is going on here. Second, notice that Sarai took Hagar, that's the language used, took Hagar and gave her to Abram, her husband, just as Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband in Genesis 3.6. Again, the same language is being used. Just as at the beginning of, of the narrative about the promised land in Genesis 12, Sarai was seen as beautiful and taken and given to Pharaoh, just like the fruit. So now Sarai takes and gives Hagar just like the fruit. This is not coincidence, right? The writer is, again, cluing us in. Something is wrong here. This is not the way things ought to be. Well, what is the result? Hagar does get pregnant, and her response is to look with contempt on her mistress. She looks down on Sarai. And, of course, Sarai isn't any happier than when the chapter started. Sin always makes us miserable, which is another clue, at least, by the writer that this was a bad move. In fact, in the next verse, verse 5, Sarai blames Abram for what has happened. And and sadly, Abram still doesn't step up, right? He continues to play a passive role in verse 6. In verse 6, he says, uh, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And notice a couple things about this story. First, absolutely everybody is in the wrong. Uh, There's no hero here. 
Sarai for her bitterness and her scheme, Abram for his passivity and complicity, Hagar for her gloating, Sarai for taking out her anger on Hagar. No one is blame-free here. But what is the root of the problem? Well, God had made a promise. He emphasized that promise in chapter 15. Abram's own son would be his heir. But 10 years have gone by. Ten long years. And Sarai begins to ask some questions. It's possible even that, that by this point she had entered into menopause. And when she says in verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, she may mean my time is up. God's chance is past. It's too late, even for him. We'll have to go some other route. And here is the heart of the matter, right? God had promised. That promise has not yet come about. All human hope is lost. And from a human perspective, Sarai cannot be a part of God's plan. So she hatches a plan of her own. Here's what Paul says about these things in Galatians 4. And we'll come back to Galatians 4 again when we talk about Genesis 21. Uh, but Paul says this in Galatians 4.23... The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, we're getting ahead of the story a little bit, but it helps us understand Sarai. As far as Sarai is concerned, the power of the promise had failed. So she turns to the power of the flesh. She decided God hasn't come through. I'll have to take matters into my own hands. And she might not have been doubting God's promise exactly, just, just helping it along, perhaps. But here's the thing. When you try to do what only God can do, you, you only make things worse. When we are tempted to take matters into our own hands or, or use the powers of this age, the powers of nature or politics or coercion or force to bring about God's ends, we will fail. Not only will we fail, we'll make things worse. God's purposes can only be brought about by God's power. You can't make a perfect world by the powers of this age. The powers of this age themselves are broken. You can't ultimately fix situations or people by the flesh. You can't convert your friends and loved ones. You can't convince your neighbors and coworkers by your ingenuity and insight. You can't overcome sin by simply trying harder or listening to the next self-help podcast. God's purposes can only be brought about by God's power. Abram is passive. Sarai is self-reliant, and neither steps up to rely on God's power. So again, what are you, what are you struggling with in life right now? What, what do you wish were different? What, what will be different on the last day when Jesus returns? Do you wish that you could make that happen right now? Are you impatient for God's promises to be fulfilled now? I've said in the past that my least favorite doctrine in Scripture is progressive sanctification. I'd like immediate sanctification, thank you very much. I'd like to see instant spiritual growth in myself and in those around me. I'd like to see a country turning to the grace of God and Jesus found in the Scriptures right now. Now, what can I do to make those things happen? Absolutely nothing. In the end, nothing. 
I can't accomplish those ends in my strength. And when you try to do what only God can do, you only make things worse. Second, God meets us in our helplessness. It's at this point that the story takes an interesting turn. Sarai treats Hagar harshly, and she runs. The angel of the Lord finds her. The good shepherd leaves the 99 for the one, right, until he finds his lost sheep. The, the, the angel of the Lord finds Hagar by a spring in the wilderness. And he says in verse 8, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And by the way, this is another echo of Genesis 3. Uh, you may remember God came to Adam and said, where are you? And then uh, in the next chapter, God came to Cain and said, where is your brother? Well, now God comes to Hagar and says, where have you come from and where are you going? Uh, the, the only real difference is that Hagar is the only one of the three who answers honestly. She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord then says essentially two things to Hagar. One, return to your mistress and submit to her. And two, your son Ishmael will become a free, unfettered person. Now, the first instruction seems harsh to us. We would never give this kind of advice. Sarai was mistreating Hagar. The angel of the Lord says, go back. But note a couple of things about this. Uh, first, the truth is Hagar could not survive on her own. Uh, a single mother didn't have many prospects in those days. Her, her options were limited. The second, Abram was the man of promise. He was the source of God's blessing for the nations. He, he was, in a sense, her best bet. In Hagar, we see another example of God blessing the nations on account of Abram. A third, God says to Hagar, essentially... Uh, freedom will come through submission. God likes to say upside down things like that, right? And, and Ishmael will, would be a wild donkey of a man, roaming free, free from the constraints of society. But this life that you want for him then requires submission from you now. That's what God is saying to Hagar. Freedom would come through submission. But, but fourth, and really most importantly, God has seen her. That's really the point of this whole scene, that God heard and saw. Hagar is, is used and abused by Sarai. Uh, once again, we have a woman used as a pawn, this time by another woman. But verse 11, the Lord has listened to her affliction, and he had seen her and so was looking after her. Even the name Ishmael communicates this because it means that God hears the emphasis here could not be more tender or more beautiful. Uh, the truth of the matter is, this story turns certain things on its head. Uh, in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, Israel will be enslaved and mistreated by Egypt. Here, an Egyptian slave is mistreated by Israel, by Sarai. The same word used of Sarai's mistreatment of Hagar will be used of Egypt's mistreatment of the Hebrew slaves in Exodus 1 verse 12. The same word used for Hagar's fleeing in verse 6 is also used for Israel's fleeing Egypt in Exodus 14.5. Sarai is the oppressive Egyptian master, and Hagar is the oppressed Israelite slave. 
But remember how that story ends. Or actually, remember how it begins. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says, During those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And what was the result of God hearing and seeing the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 2? The result was the exodus. The result was the greatest saving act of God in the Old Testament. When God hears and sees, he acts on behalf of his people. Well, whom does God hear and see in Genesis chapter 16? Hagar. And the great Old Testament commentator Bruce Waltke says that verse 8 of our text is the only place in all ancient Near Eastern literature Not just all the Old Testament, but all ancient Near Eastern literature. But you got to wonder, how can anybody know that? That, That's a stupendous fact, but we'll just go with it. Verse 8 is the only place in in all ancient Near Eastern literature where a deity calls a woman by name. Just as God gave Sarai her name back in Genesis 12, when rather than seeing her as a prop, he acted on her behalf, so now God sees Hagar... And he calls her by name. And she says in verse 13, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. It's a beautiful statement. She recognizes this angel of the Lord. This angel of the Lord is God himself. The messenger of the Lord is the Lord. And they have seen one another face to face. And God is looking after her. That's what she realizes, and that's enough. She knows that God has seen her. She knows that God will act for her. She knows that God is looking after her, and so she goes back and bears a son. God meets us in our helplessness, right? God cares for the weak and the powerless, the the single mother, the widow and orphan, the poor and downtrodden, right? He meets us in our helplessness, our powerlessness against sin, our hopelessness for our rebellious children, our fearfulness about the future of our job or city or nation or world, just there God meets us and says, I have listened to your affliction. I see you in your trouble, and I will look after you. And if we are unsure about this, we only need look at the face of Christ, the messenger of the Lord who is himself the Lord. This is where God meets with us, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what do we see there? We see a Savior who came in weakness to die in weakness that we might live by the power of God. This whole story is, in a sense, about power, isn't it? The power of God's promise Sarah judges has failed, or at least it needs a little help. Sarah turns to the power of the flesh, but she doesn't like the outcome. So she uses her power to oppress her maidservant, who runs, who is powerless, who is alone in the wilderness. And there God meets with the powerless and promises life. 
Now, this all leaves open the question of God's promise. Is Ishmael the promised child or not? Will God's promise be fulfilled? Sarai does not get what she wants. She says in verse 2, it may be that I shall obtain children by Hagar. But in verses 15 and 16, we are told three times that Hagar bore a son for Abram, not Sarai. So what of God's promise? Is Sarai out and Hagar in? Well, that brings us to our last point. When you try to do what only God can do, you only make things worse. Where does God meet us? He meets us in our helplessness, in our powerlessness. And so third, what if God is calling you to wait? You know, this whole mess happens because Sarai and Abram are not committed to waiting on God. Abram suggested back in in chapter 15 that his servant might become his heir. It was a common practice for a childless man to adopt an heir in those days. But God says, no, you shall have a son from your own body who will be your heir. And there's no such dialogue in chapter 16, though. Sarai doesn't say to God, well, what about this? She simply takes matters into her own hands, and Abram passively stands by and watches, or, or maybe not so passively, but he, he, uh, you get the point. Sarai and Abram are not willing to wait on God. But what if God was calling them to wait? Whatever you are struggling with, whatever promise of God you are holding on to, what if God is calling you to wait? That God shows up in our weakness does not mean he fulfills all of his promises in that moment. Sometimes God's answer is, wait, just wait. Even Jesus, after completing his work on the cross by dying for sin, waited for three days in the grave for his father to raise him from the dead. But God did just that. And he fulfilled his promises by raising Jesus from the dead. And it is just that which assures us that our waiting is not in vain. God will fulfill his purposes. God is faithful to those who wait for him. That doesn't mean that you get uh, everything that you want in this life if you just wait long enough. It means that God is at work in this life to care for the powerless now And he will fulfill all of his promises on the last day at the resurrection of the dead. If we belong to Jesus, we too must wait. Wait for the Father to fulfill his promises and his purposes for us. Now you might wonder, especially in light of what I've been saying about Abram, isn't isn't just waiting passive? We just heard you shouldn't be passive and now you're telling us to wait. Well, the answer is waiting is not passive if, if done properly. Uh, waiting is actually can be a very active thing. What does active waiting look like? Well, first, it means doing whatever you can legitimately do. Uh, there's an important question lingering in the air, right, which is how do you know when to try something different and when to simply wait on God? And are those even mutually exclusive? Sarai thought the power of the promise had failed, so she turned to the power of the flesh, But the solution to self-reliance is not passivity, right? So how do you know? Uh, When do you try a different angle, a different technique, another option, and when do you simply wait? Well, it's it's actually easier to say when not to try a different angle, isn't it? Uh, If that angle is sinful, like sleep with your wife's handmade sinful, don't do it. That's a bad option. Second, if you're trying to do what only God can do, In your strength, conquer sin, convince unbelief, convert sinners. Don't do it. Only God can do those things. 
Third, if your desire for this thing, whatever it is that you're striving after, has itself gotten out of hand, if your desire, if you desire this thing more than God or more than other goods, important God-given desires, the good of family, for example, right? If this desire has become inordinate or out of line or out of order, don't do it, right? Deal with that out-of-control desire. Leave the fulfillment of it in God's hands. But if you are trying to do something legitimate and trusting God for the results, by all means, go right ahead. We can, we can be actively seeking to put sin to death, We can be actively seeking the conversion of our loved ones. We can be actively seeking to be a blessing to our communities. But we must entrust the results and the timing to our Father in heaven. We can act without anxiety because our trust is in God, not in our activity. So active waiting means, one, doing whatever you can legitimately do and then trusting in God for the results. Second, it means using the means of grace to wait on God. So, so you relate to him. You cry out to him. You seek for him to work in your life. Draw near to him face to face, as it were. God wants to use our struggles and our longings to draw us close to him. So draw close. right? Like, like Hagar in her powerlessness, whom God drew close to her, of course, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays to the Father, like Paul with his thorn in the flesh where he turns to Jesus, turn your pain and your tears into prayer. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James says. So draw near to your Father as you wait. So active waiting means, one, doing what you can legitimately do uh, and trusting God with the results. Two, using the means of grace to wait on God, to cry out to him, to draw near to him, in this time of waiting. And three, not complaining and grumbling and so on. Uh, when impatience appears, right, remind yourself of the promises of God and the faithfulness of God, that the, the race is not done and the battle is not over, that the cross comes before the crown, that through death comes resurrection, that our hope is kept in heaven for us by Jesus. And whatever we do or do not experience in this life, all things will be made new on the last day. That is our hope, and for that we wait. Faith, even waiting faith, is not passive. In Mark uh, chapter 4, Jesus tells uh, this parable of the kingdom. He says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Well, sleeps and rises, he, he knows not how, uh, that, that seems pretty passive. But before he waits for the seed to grow, he scatters. Or consider 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, where Paul says uh, similar, similarly, uh, What then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So what do we do? We plant, we water, and we wait. We plant, we water, and we wait. We plant, we water, and God gives the growth. Now, I don't know what you're struggling with, what you're waiting for, what you're longing for. I don't know what promise of God you're holding on to. But let me encourage you toward active waiting, right? Do do what you can do to serve God now to honor him now, to draw near to him 
now. Use the means of grace for yourself. Share the gospel with others. Scatter seed, plant, and water. Pray and pray and pray some more. And wait on God to give the growth. When you try to do what only God can do, you only make things worse. But God will meet you in your helplessness. And what if God is calling you to wait? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us to wait on you, to trust in you, to remember your promises, and that as you raise Jesus from the dead, all of your promises will come true on the last day at the resurrection of the dead. Help us to long for and wait for that day and to walk with you in the meantime. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.